What is up, unfuckers? It's your boy Max. Riding solo, 99 is on the road this week, but she sends her love. And she actually got to hang out with our very own Tom McGovern in person. So hopefully we'll get some stories when she returns. This week we are following up on our phone-a-friend with Nick Hanauer. I hope everybody enjoyed that episode. It seems like we got some pretty good feedback on this one. Uh, There's a lot of crossover with Pitchfork Economics, obviously. And just to tell you what a prince of a guy Nick Hanauer is, our software that we record on for the phone of friends, because we use an audio and a visual tool, actually crapped out not once, not twice, three times. And so we had to resort to Zoom. So for anybody who was, well, let's just say a couple things there. Manny had to do some heroics to get the audio in shape from Zoom. We had to kind of overcome some things in production to make sure that it looked okay because I wasn't used to editing those type of videos and it comes out differently, what have you. But Nick rolled with it each time, couldn't have been more gracious. We restarted the interview. So we th- th- what you saw was the fourth take of that interview, which I'm sure was exhausting for him because he was in a different time zone. But um, when I tell you that he could not have been more lovely or accommodating, it's it, it's wonderful to see. You know, he's enjoyed a lot of success in his life. He has a show that is uh, now demonstrably bigger than ours, and he just had all the time in the world to hang and talk to us. So for everybody who wrote in about it and check that episode out for sending the, the kind remarks, which we'll get to, I appreciate that and I hope you enjoyed it. So reminder that our membership tiers are changing sometime in December. Our crew is very busy behind the scenes, getting things in shape. Big changes coming to the website, which I hope everybody really likes. And uh, of course, big changes coming to the newsletter and the membership tiers as well. We are still locking in memberships now. Please lock in if you can during our fall fund, friend, and hellraiser period. We are in dire need of new members and supporters to help bring our content to the next level. So anything you can do to help us out during this period would be much appreciated. And of course, as we get into the news and the headlines, the news is obviously dominated by Israel and Gaza, as it should be. This has much larger consequences on global affairs outside of the region as well. But the horrors unfolding should be enough to captivate our attention, so I'm sure that that's where we're going to be spending a little bit of time over the next couple couple of weeks, for sure. I'm just floored by the the from-the-hip responses and the bad takes, and I'm keenly aware of so many of them, and, and I'm trying in the next episode to take a much more clinical and refined approach without too much emotion in it, and without trying to refute a lot of the bad takes that are out there. We'll just let those go out there because you can get into a a this side and a that side argument so easily when you're trying to break down conflicts that are, you know, literally centuries old. But uh, what is happening right now is no less a horror show. You know, the, the hard part in putting an episode together is trying not to live too much in the past as well. But there's so much context that Americans in particular are missing from the story of this region. So I can't be exactly sure when I'll deliver it to Manny, but know that any delay is because I am twisting myself in knots trying to get this right. Not that timing should matter on a show like this, but or a show like ours in general on Fucking the Republic is not necessarily a breaking news podcast. But, you know, when we delve into information that is sensitive to the moment, 
it's really important to get these things right. There will be so much more that I cut out of it than keep in, and I'm going to try and keep something really nice and tight just to offer one perspective that I don't hear enough of. It's not a fresh take or a new take. It's just that it is not in, in the current hotbed of reporting that is going on over the actual events on the ground. It's just a take that has sort of taken a, a back seat. So that's where I'm going with it. And, uh, you know, wish me luck. Now, getting into headlines, in the spirit of talking about this conflict, including an article here from Foreign Affairs magazine. Now, this is by a guy named Richard Haas, who was the president of the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations for 20 years and under multiple administrations, obviously. So I wanted to include his advice to Israel to get a feel for the warm tones of diplomacy during a time of horror and mayhem. So he's also the former special envoy to Northern Ireland and therefore draws some parallels between Israel and Britain to offer a more diplomatic path forward to easing tensions as though that's possible in the Middle East. Side players in all of this, he teases out the U.S. perspective on where China, Iran, Lebanon, of course ourselves, and Saudi Arabia kind of all fit into this equation as they get drawn into this geopolitical puzzle. So it provides a view into the tricky waters that our aging and beleaguered president is about to wade, for sure. And mind you, sharing this article is far from an endorsement of Haas's worldview. I'm just sharing it so we can kind of help explore the mind of those responsible for crafting U.S. policy in the world and to see the very clinical take that they have on this. So here's an excerpt from the article where he makes a number of arguments as to why Israel should try to quell their response to the bombings by Hamas. Quote, the first argument against a large-scale invasion is that its costs would almost certainly outweigh benefits. Hamas does not present good military targets, as it has deeply embedded its military infrastructure in civilian areas of Gaza. An attempt to destroy it would require a large-scale assault in a densely populated urban environment, which would prove costly for Israel and lead to civilian casualties that would generate support for Hamas among Palestinians. Israel would also suffer extensive casualties and additional soldiers could be abducted. If there is a historical analogy, it is closer to the U.S. experience in Afghanistan and Iraq than to what Israel accomplished in its 1967 and 1973 wars." End quote. So in show notes, I'll include a link to that article. But again, this is not to develop any sort of hot take or to read anything into it other than to see how diplomatic channels from the United States in whatever we would consider our foreign policy apparatus view troubles like this when, when, they're, when they're just brewing. So with that, let's get into some emails and some feedback. Linda P. wrote in about our labor episode, Strike, said, quote, As a woman, for me, one of the worst things about misogyny, the thing that gave me the most hopeless feeling, was and is that no matter how well I did or do, X or Y, it can never be good enough. Someone else might take responsibility for my work and then it could be re recognized it would be good enough, but as long as it was associated with me, it could never be good enough. I have exactly the same feeling of hopelessness now when I hear Max casually diss boomers. He talks as if old people are inherently inferior. We are deeply bad in some way that he gives no evidence for and nothing we did, and we did quite a few things that improved the fairness situation, will ever be enough to raise us to a position of equality among human beings. I do not get how any one of us does not understand that as soon as you make a group into people, you can dismiss and trash talk, you fuck up the whole equality and fairness project. 
So Max, what could we have done that would have been enough for you? What can we do now to make you stop casually talking about us old people the way racists talk about dot, dot, dot? Linda P., first off, I see you, and I wanted to lead with this comment for that very reason. I see you, and I appreciate you writing in. When I casually refer to boomers, it is mostly in jest, and I hope that the tongue-in-cheek nature of it does kind of shine through. Now, am I uh, sanguine about the possibility that the boomer generation in Congress, which is, I think, mostly how I'm referring to boomers, will see their way clear to adopt and adapt progressive ideals that can surge us forward as a nation to be, to be better actors on the world stage and to help take care of our own? Not really. But recall also that at the same time, I've always made the argument that I do not believe in term limits as an example because I believe in the power of institutional knowledge. So the boomer class, in the political class at least, so boomers in the political class, have great institutional knowledge on how the systems work and where the gaps are and where we can make improvements and standing on the shoulders of people who are now boomers who did remarkable things to advance the cause of civil rights, to advance women's rights, to advance the rights of the LGBTQ community, and so on. In so many ways, the standouts of that generation who are seemingly reluctant to take on any new great fights are still the ones that hold the keys to successful agitation within the system, which is another thing that I obviously am in favor of. I think it takes a healthy mixture of young, progressive, fearless-minded people who don't know what they don't know about losing battles to wage some important battles within the system lest there be chaos, while learning from those who are entrenched in these positions that have something really valuable to offer the younger generation of agitators. At the same time, there are a great number of them that need to now be moved out. Now I'm in favor of doing that electorally. That's kind of been the mantra of the show. But at the same time, we can't sit back and just assume that past generations who are kind of fixed in their positions and have begun to calcify with their attitudes towards certain events or what can be done or can't be done, I think that's just human nature. I mean, I feel it myself. I'm in my 50s now, so do I see the world? Do I try to keep an open mind to the world? Absolutely. But do I need to be surrounded by people like 99, for example, who is a young bright woman who has different worldviews and different experiences in the world? Absolutely. Do I get a tremendous amount of benefit about, you know, talking to somebody who is my contemporary in many faces, but about a different cultural attitude and aspects of, of our daily existence? Absolutely. It's what I get from phone of friends, and it's what I get from unfuckers. But I'm open to it. Not a lot of people as they get older are as open to it as I'm hopefully trying to be, and, and I will say that that's not just, you know, that's not just patting myself on the back for being oh so open-minded. It's something that I have to really work at because it's so much easier to just be intransigent. It's so much easier to just say, you know, I, I wish things were the way they were and that uh, people would just, you know, stop, uh, you know, making trouble because uh, everything's just fine. When we do that, we get complacent. And that's just, I think, the nature of aging. So... I don't mean to paint boomers with the same brush. It's just fun to do it. And uh, hey, as a Gen Xer, I'm willing to take criticism for 
kind of being asleep at the switch for so many years because we really were, you know? I'm inspired by what the millennial generation has brought forward. I'm really curious to see what the what Gen Z, what their impact is going to be on the world. But I think it, it it's important that we all borrow from one another to find out what works, what doesn't, what the limits are, and then where we need to push. Moving over to Pastor Tim. Pastor Tim sent in a sermon-length email that I will condense to just his closing thoughts. But Pastor Tim, as always, uh, I enjoy reading your email, so don't feel the need to uh, to ever shorten them. Quote, I thought Nick's perspective that we need to question the underlying assumptions of the capitalist narrative was so fucking on point that I almost exclaimed out loud as I was taking my nighttime walk through the neighborhood. Much like the left's mistake in accepting the pro-life wacko's definitions and language addressing the issue of abortion, if we accept the terms of the debate as dictated to us, we're halfway to losing the debate. Bless you, 99. I didn't mean to offend at all, but I heard a little mention of my comment about being more accepting and curious when old guys say weird shit, and I hope you receive my comment in the way it was intended. Remember, they had a little back and forth in the last episode. As a spur to a greater conversation and sharing among the various constituencies in our coalition, love you and your work. Max, I cannot urge you more strenuously to dive into the conversation surrounding the Israel-Hamas and maybe Hezbollah conflict. My undergrad degree is in Near Eastern and Arabic Studies, and I have an MD, Master's in Divinity, MDiv, if that's not too pretentious. So my focus has been on the area of, on this area of the world for a long time. All perspectives, so long as we confess our own deficiencies, should be welcome. I appreciate all of that, Pastor Tim, and I will tell you that my deficiencies still come back. That, that I have this, uh, this sort of nagging voice in my head from... And I think I mentioned this in, in show notes the last time from my, my Israeli friend who said, you know, how can you how can you with a straight face even report on this issue when you haven't even been to the region? You know, to which I responded that, you know, I wasn't alive in the 18th and 19th centuries either. But, you know, we do a lot of work in, in those areas as well. That's why it's it's also important, though, that I can't speak and I don't like it when people speak from the perspective of Palestinians as though they're a monolith and certainly from the the perspective of Israelis as though they're a monolith and the perspective of Muslims and Jews across the world as though they too are monolithic. So the nuance that I feel that we can bring to this discussion to better arm unfuckers at least to having these conversations out loud is the perspective uh, that that we always bring to the show, how things develop, the way they develop, and what are the external factors that lead to these types of, of conflicts. So what are the circumstances on the ground from a historical perspective that led to the way that uh, that we view things today? And where and where do we fit into this narrative? The United States as the preeminent hegemonic power in the world, has a role to play in all of this. And we as citizens have a role and responsibility to be informed about what our government's steps are in trying to ameliorate or potentially exacerbate the situation. Lord knows we've done enough in the region. So it's, like I said, it's it's going to be, I'm going to walk a fine line and try not to get my, my personal emotions into it because there's so many perspectives and so many takes that you know, as somebody who has uh, who's married to a Jew and has Jewish daughters, uh, but as somebody who is a devout progressive and atheist and all those things, I could come at this from many different perspectives. I just choose to come at it 
as clinically myself as I can, laying out the facts so that we understand the context and have and can elevate the discussion. Now, Will, hold for it. I am William Wallace. Watkins said, y'all know I'm a pitch fucker, so I was thrilled to see and hear your conversation with Nick Hanauer of Civic Ventures and Pitchfork Economics. My deeper fascination with economics as a fundamental part of our human existence really started with his pod, and then, of course, when they introduced me to you, and you introduced me to Best of the Left, which begat democracy-ish and democracy now, and, and so on and so on. Now I'm reading books on the subjects and hearing the words and thoughts of activists from all over the country, from all different stripes. I feel as though so much of the fulcrum to bringing about lasting benevolent change in the world pivots on how we share resources that seem infinite on some levels and incredibly finite in others. Nick talks often about relieving human suffering and solving human problems, and I've seen the value of looking at things through that lens. So have I. It's, it's one of the things that I appreciated the most about Pitchfork Economics, first of all, is that they come at it from a very, very practical standpoint. And the work that he and Goldie do, among others at Civic Ventures, is all about working diligently within the system to try and achieve those very human results. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, it was very cool to bring the two together, Will. I can tell you that. And um, that brings us to our buddy Dan H., who also loved the conversation with Nick. He said, I am a weekly listener of Pitchfork because you recommended it, so it was fun to hear those worlds collide. I had the exact same questions and thoughts you brought up in the interview, Max, and it was helpful to hear Nick say, yes, Biden has done well, but it's not enough. They don't make that point loudly enough on the podcast, but it's an important nuance to add to the conversation. Two other notes. 99. I also tie my shoes with bunny ears, and there's absolutely no shame in that. One suggestion when you do put the first loop of the laces and pull it down to the top of your shoe, loop the lace around twice instead of just once. If you do this, that loop will stay taut while you do the bunny ears so that you don't lose tension. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> uh, and the second note is, I'm really looking forward to your historical take on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how it relates to recent events. It's a difficult subject to talk about in any capacity, but having the context of how we got here is typically how I approach the conversation when talking with friends and family. Thanks for putting UNFTR touch on the topic. Looking forward to giving my thoughts as an American non-practicing Jew after the episode. Uh, not as much as I'm looking forward to your response, Dan, so thank you. And thank you for being open to, to hearing our perspective on the subject, because it, it, it is a bit of an outlier, but you know, it does uh, it does touch on so many things that are important to uh, to our you know our audience. So, hopefully, we do it justice. Nathan S has a critique, and it's an important one. So, um, it's it's a small critique on a, on a small point that came up, but it's definitely worth teasing out. Nathan said, "You know, I always commend you for the research you do. It was surprised to hear in your interview with Nick Hanauer, you did not push back at all on his point regarding NDAs." I've managed large-scale operations for many years, so was surprised when he stated that Jimmy Johns makes their employees sign an NDA. I was compelled to research that, and while it's sadly true that they had NDAs in the past, they lost several lawsuits over this and in 2016 removed the practice. Uh, he goes on to talk about some other areas uh, that that has been retired and some other stories that were not facts that were promulgated by Joe Biden. And then he goes on to say, I'm not trying to discredit Mr. Hanauer as his overall topic was very compelling, but I know you're someone who likes to get the research right, and I felt this statement really needed to be called out. I am, and it did, and I appreciate that. He concludes saying, I work for a company with over 200,000 employees. My goodness. One of these large companies that Mr. Hanauer takes issue with, but I can assure you, we do not have any of our hourly employees, and in fact, most of our salaried employees as well, ever sign an NDA. Thanks for reading the email. I hope it's taken in the spirit of keeping the show always held accountable to the high standards I love it for. 
Uh, it absolutely is, and I appreciate that that correction. It's funny when, uh, obviously, I did the interview, so I remember when he, he mentioned that. And we're not in the business of live fact-checking anybody because it wasn't necessarily a, a debate about that specifically, and I couldn't have seen it coming. However, the spirit that I took it in was more of a, more anecdotally that I, I felt as though he was using Jimmy John's as a placeholder, and it could have been for any institution. Um, so it, it wouldn't have even occurred to me to actually look that fact up specifically. But obviously, there's some history there, and that is what he was referencing. So it's good to tease that out. And thank you, Nathan. Dave from UNFTR's resident band, Hold Fast, said, After a few whiskeys and cigars at a recent social gathering, a conversation between myself and the captain, I said, what? Spawned a random thought I haven't seen expressed anywhere. I posit the following philosophical argument against neoliberalism. We should separate the profits created from the outputs of capital from the artificial wealth built by financial systems that simply use money to create money. You can keep your share of the company's real profits, but we should tax the fuck out of the phony money that was created out of thin air. If this were a starting point for a philosophical debate against neoliberal economic theory, what would be the counterargument? How would they defend the financial structures that are completely disconnected from the physical inputs and outputs of capital? Uh, Dave also had another pointed question about MMT and Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth that I'm going to kind of file away in the event that I ever get her on a phone a friend, but it's a really good question. But getting back to the original one, that was actually, you know, so funny enough, that was one of the core principles of the Trump campaign in 2016. What? I know. So he actually railed against the carried interest provision, which is essentially the uh, the ability for people who make money off of money not to be taxed at the at the same rate. And it got a lot of traction, believe it or not, among people that at least understood that he was railing against the corporate class. Of course, he then did nothing about it when he got into office and only gave more away to, to the, his wealthy constituencies, as he did and as he would do again. But it shows you that that gained some popularity on the right and the left. That is a very populist take. I don't think anybody when they understand the issue of people making enormous sums of money off of money being taxed at rates that are less than what you are taxed at in your job job, uh, that makes people mad. Same goes for capital gains. Same goes for the threshold, which I think is like $6 million or something like that for estate taxes. You know, Or uh, no, I think it's actually maybe double that now. It's something outrageous. I have to look that up. Anyway, Making money from money is has become an art and a science in this country that has allowed for preposterous gains in inequality and is something that is so eminently like uh, fixable with closing these loopholes that it uh, kind of defies logic that it is not talked about more often. So Dave, you're in a really good starting point. There's a lot of great literature and research out there about closing these loopholes. Even to the extent, and I think some provisions were put in place for this. Again, I'll have to go back and research this, but I believe that there were provisions put in place that uh, changed the calculus on how long you can hold an investment, so that it uh, it takes away the incentives to, you know, do these pump and dump schemes where you know people will just take enormous profits off the table and then go and reinvest them, where you have to actually hold securities and treat it as a long-term investment. There's room to to make that even more stringent, but I believe that that was one small instance that did pass. Uh, but I will do my research on that and get back to you. So getting into some general feedback, our very good friend Maria from Puerto Rico said, I listened to Al Jazeera 
Democracy Now!, Citations Needed, and actually Chapo Trap House had a serious episode, number 771. The East is a podcast, Electronic Infatata, and of course, always The Intercept and Intercepted and Deconstructed Podcasts, Sam Cedar and Mark Steiner. So going through the litany of sources that Maria from Puerto Rico looks at to make the point that I've been avoiding Twitter. There's a lot of junk sensationalism that lies there. Thank you all for uh, reading through this point. Thanks for putting up with me. Take care. Love you. Appreciate you, 99, and Manny. So Maria's just talking about getting news from better sources and context from better sources and, and falling out of that trap of of looking at the headlines and uh, the mainstream news outlets and certainly the dumpster fire that Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it has become. And the older PDX Squatch wrote a wonderful email on a few topics. One portion that I wanted to highlight is a reminder about the nature of unions. So here he says, quote, one important distinction between the UAW and UPS strikes and strikes by teachers, police, etc., is that instead of cutting into profits, we are paid by tax dollars, which the GOP and Freedmanites have consistently cut back on. Our district, as corrupt, discriminatory, and management-heavy as it is, is also limited heavily by money distributed by the state of Oregon, whose income depends on those tax dollars. The state also gives huge tax breaks to Phil Knight of Nike, Nike itself, Intel, the Gordon family, huge property owners in Portland who are right now finishing the new Ritz-Carlton building downtown. And the list goes on. These political players and businesses have been funding anti-tax candidates, laws and policies, which then directly impact public goods such as schools, end quote. Yeah, one thing that I wanted to uh, build on there, PDX, is when the public attacks unions, vilifying teachers and, and even to an extent cops for their retirement plans and payouts and all that kind of stuff, they're attacking them because they can actually see them in their state budgets and they're much more closely attached to that when when they see that you know a state puts out we're going to have to cut x y and z and then blames it on the pensioners there's a there's a, a sense that that is directly impacting people whereas oh that person who's fighting for something over at the auto plant that's in that's in another state uh good for them that's wonderful but um that's a that's a them issue it doesn't impact me necessarily that you know that narrative is very dangerous and it it puts normal citizens in opposition to those service unions that are so vital and, and so critical to building communities. I mean, communities are made up of cops and teachers and firefighters and EMS workers, and yes, the tradespeople as well. But the service unions, I think, have taken sort of a, even even a more hard brunt of, of the debate on the local levels because, you know, people think that that, that person that, you know, spent you know, got their 20 and out or, you know, it was 30 years in the uh, in the pension system. And this is a huge issue in New York, by the way. Teachers in the pension system that are still part of the old step programs where there were, you know, really great benefits, good pay and all that kind of stuff are retiring with what people consider to be exorbitant salaries. And then they move out of state. Okay. They educated your teach your kids for 30 fucking years. I think that they deserved a good life. And like I've always said, you know, if anybody who wants to trade places with the teacher uh, for 10 minutes, go go ahead and, and try your hand at that, especially in the era of people who think that they can de design an individualized curriculum for every student based upon what's happening in somebody's house. I mean, anyway, I can go on and on, and I have gone on and on about that, but I appreciate uh, PDX Squatch bringing, the older PDX Squatch bringing some, uh, some light to that. And uh, yeah, we're here for all of it. 
whatever union activity is going on, like I said, it might be statistically a rounding error for what's happening in the labor movement writ large, but it's important to figure that out while we work on other avenues to bring the workforce more fully into the conversation. And then over on Facebook, there's just too much to cover on the Unfuckers at All page. Harund is a little out of control right now. I can say that our our buddy from Iceland is uh, is a serial poster, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to see if we can get a handle on her. But there's a lot of funny shit that's going on. There's a lot of serious, heartfelt stuff uh, mixed in with right the the kind of right amount of silliness, and kind of gives me life when I visit that page. So I just wanted to shout out uh, everybody in the Unfuckers at All group. Um, you can find it if you're not a member of it by going to our Facebook page and clicking on the group there. And shout out to Jen S for sharing nature's dick pics as a great compliment to corporate bullshit. I love that. And over on YouTube, we've got Belmaris who said it's criminal you guys don't have more subscribers. Yes. 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 Yeah. I agree. What are we going to do about that, unfuckers? I'm hovering in the 4,000 range, but to be honest, that's got to be like 400,000 if we're going to make a dent anywhere, right? Got to make that happen. I'm working on it. Political Economy 101 says the book Levers of Power, How the 1% Rules and What the 99% Can Do About It debunks the claim from Nick that Obama could have succeeded in pushing through progressive goals. I am very interested in reading that book, I have to tell you. My issue, I, I think that Obama was a creature of the time and a creature of neoliberalism and also definitely, as Nick pointed out in the interview, listening to the people around him that told him that he couldn't push too far. Again, I go back to, I mean, it, it the seminal moment in the Obama presidency surrounded that initial stimulus package that wound up being $787 billion. And Larry Summers was in his ear telling him, you can't do anything over a billion, keep it under eight and we, you know, we'll have a chance to fight for reelection. Uh, don't do anything that's, you know, tops a trillion dollars because you'll never recover from that, even though that's exactly what we needed at that time. And at the same time, he pushed so hard for the health care reform that was authored by insurance companies and consultants and lobbyists that he sort of squandered a tremendous amount of political capital in the early years fighting for a stimulus that was too small and then for, uh, you know, a, a health care package that, you know, propped up the establishment health care system as is and then didn't make any real gains and actually wound up costing people more and more money. I don't know about you. We just got our health care renewals in. It's up another 8% for us. I'm sure it's the same for a lot of other folks out there. It's just it never seems to go the other way. And of course, we still have millions of people, especially after the COVID relief ran out, that find, found themselves uninsured yet again. I'm not saying that Medicare for all would have been on the table. I, I agree that the votes certainly were not there, but any sort of public option conversation just died when the insurance companies got involved in the discussion and we weren't able to move that forward. Minimum wage is another one that could have happened. Student debt relief is another thing that could have happened. I mean, these were all right there and would have had a lot of popular support, I believe. Now, I know Nick feels differently. He said that you know people didn't agree with the minimum wage at the time. But you're talking about minimum wage that hadn't moved in in decades. It was possible, I think, to get more done on that uh, and to fight for certain progressive ideals that that would have benefited us in the long run. But ultimately, we never got to because, you know, presidential terms are only now, I think, about 18 months. And then we just devolve into chaos with Congress that, that can't move. And then the president has to start running for the next election. So that's what we get. We get an 18 month term 
and uh, whatever you're going to get, you're going to get. We're living through it right now, right? So anyway, uh, I do appreciate that comment. And Mo Doyle said, great pairing, Max and Nick. Hey, cool. Thanks. The podcast YouTube gives more and deeper content than others. Thank you. I appreciate that. Lewis Ronald said, sending my gratitude to Nick and Goldie for introducing me to UNFTR on Pitchfork Economics. Max, this was a great interview. Here, here. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Goldie. At the end uh, of the interview, I asked Nick um, if Goldie would be open to appearing. I, I love Goldie's voice and his take on stuff. He's so he's my he's my type of sarcasm. So um, I said, would he be open to coming on the show? And he said, absolutely. So uh, hopefully we can line Goldie up at some point for uh, for a more pointed interview on on a couple of subjects that I think he would crush. Uh, and lastly, we got Jeremy, who said, UNFTR introduced me to Pitchfork, and honestly, I felt like I was a bit behind on some of their vernacular. This interview helped bring me up to speed. Thanks, Max. So it looked like it was a good pairing overall. Not many people taking issue with Nick or uh, with the content that we shared, and people seem to get a lot out of it. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, like I said up top, enjoyed it immensely, and uh, I can't, can't even tell you what an, just a super, super nice guy Nick is. And let's round it out with some donations. Snartin bought the team a coffee. Thank you, Snartin. Aaron H. bought three coffees, said, sorry about the Taylor Swift rant. I was having a bad day. I still think she's overrated and doesn't deserve the bandwidth, but I agree with your rebuttal. Boy, it's good 99 isn't here. <laughs> and Joel joined as a committed member. Thank you, Joel. And someone else, didn't leave a name, became a curious member and said, Max, I've been a listener since early 2021 and have listened to every single episode. Hot damn. The lessons you're providing about the history of, and economics of our fucked up country are eye-opening. The research and work that go into each episode must be exhausting. It is. And I can't thank you and the crew, 99 and Manny, enough. While listening to your phone a friend with Nick, I kept thinking to myself, while I completely agree with raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, what prevents corporate America from simply, quote, taking price, you are a close listener, and pulling every last dollar back into their coffers? Much like you explained the federal COVID stimulus money being gobbled up, wouldn't a national wage increase just be washed out by corporate greed in the end? I'd love to hear your thoughts and thank you. The reason I think it's different is because you're talking about the lower tier of the wage system, entry-level jobs, fast food workers, you know, people that are doing low-skilled jobs, and I'm doing air quotes when I say that, and a lot of young people and really old people that are coming into the workforce for the first time or just trying to supplement their income coming out of the workforce. That can also apply to new immigrants to the country that are looking to get a, get a, a foothold into the economy. So it's, it's not as many people as received the COVID stimulus. So what you saw with the COVID stimulus packages, the back-to-backs that came out, is that average Americans, middle class, upper middle class, everybody wound up flush and the corporations wound up taking price as a result. Nick does quote a number of really great studies in the civic ventures work that he does showing that when low wage earners increase their money, corporate profitability may decrease slightly and maybe they pass along a couple of cent increase onto their products just to maintain their profit margins the way they were. But the, what it does to demonstrably help the lower end of the wage spectrum far outweighs any cut to profits, and it just winds up working all around for everybody. The taking price example in, in the post-pandemic relief era was so egregious that we were talking about, at least on the progressive end of things, talking about 
uh, having windfall taxes, which is something that we should still be talking about. So if anything, if there was ever a situation that arose again, where all of a sudden the whole country was flush with some savings and was able to pay down debt and all of a sudden there was more in the savings account than they owed on credit cards or, or what have you, you know, I could see corporations attempting to, quote, take price again. And that's why we have to be having serious discussions out of that moment about things like windfall taxes when when corporations are so obviously, uh, you know, taking a predatory stance against consumers as a whole. So, but yeah, thank you for becoming a member. Thank you to all of our members for continuing to support the show. Like I said, uh, we are working our asses off to try and build out our content matrix here, adding a bunch of new things, and then adding some some uh, some some cool stuff to the membership tiers that I think people are really going to like. All of it is going to take more time away from our day jobs that really fund this thing. So I you know I implore you to get involved and and to help out if you can. And if not, don't worry about it. We're all in the same boat, and I'm committed to pulling the oars with you as long as you want me to. So that's it for this week. Looking forward to 99 coming back in the studio next week. As I said, I'm on target to deliver things on time to Manny, but if I feel like the narrative is missing something or it's just not there yet, I may hold it back a day or two. So the drop could be Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. Not really sure, but we'll keep you informed with the newsletter. That's all for now, folks. Catch you on the flip side.